Howdy everybody, Mike here from Come and Take It. This week we're going to take a look back at a Season 2 classic, Part 1 of our multi-part episode on Santa Ana. We hope you'll enjoy it. This was a really interesting episode because we broke down the life of, uh, well, kind of the Darth Vader of Texas, and really showed what made him a really complicated individual, and learned a lot that we didn't know. Uh, we're very excited. We're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the show and we're so thankful for all of your support and listens. Continue to share the show. Continue to let us know what you love about Texas. And uh, you keep listening. We'll keep making them. And without further ado, here's the show. They'll put the yee-haw back in your motor and transmission. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. No man dominated the political life of Mexico's first few decades like Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. From his earliest days as a Spanish soldier to the bloody field of San Jacinto, Santa Ana's glory was tied to Texas as much as it was to Mexico. Today we're looking at the early life and rise to power of the infamous Santa Ana, the Napoleon of the West. But first, what's your favorite local radio or TV jingle? Well, I thought about this and the best one I can come up with and that I can remember from way back in the early 1980s in the Houston area was the, the jingle for Thunderbolt Transmission. Uh, they'll put the yee-haw back in your motor and transmission. Well... Uh, it's a great one, and I'm sure the Houston people are clapping right now at home. For me, I would think of the late 70s, and uh, the local bus service was Via, and they had their Via, 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 Via campaign, and it complete with Muppet-style <laughs> bus puppets that went to historical San Antonio landmarks and sang the Via song. Awesome. Well, those are good, but you're both wrong. The uh, <laughs> The greatest jingle in Texas is... West Wayford. Nice. <laughs> Dallas people know that one. It has been said that the enemies you keep define your character. For many, the greatest enemy that Texas ever had was the conqueror of the Alamo and the butcher of Goliad, Mexican dictator Santa Ana. But just as the character of Texas is complex, resilient, and multifaceted, so was the character of Santa Ana. The image of the cruel and bloodthirsty tyrant only tells part of this man's remarkable story. Santa Ana was a dictator who suppressed liberties and ordered the execution of those who stood against him, but he was also one of the most popular Mexican heroes, a great military leader, and one of the founders of the Republic. How did Santa Ana find himself facing the greatest defeat of his life at San Jacinto? Antonio de Padua Maria Severino Lopez de Santa Ana y Perez de Lebron was born on February 21, 1794, to a Criollo family in the coastal town of Jalapa. His father was a merchant and a local official in the Spanish province of Veracruz on Mexico's eastern coast. Under the complex caste system of Spanish America, Criollos, or Creoles, were of non-noble Spanish descent and born in New Spain. They were the middle class below the peninsulares, who were aristocratic and of noble blood, but they were above the mestizos of mixed Spanish and Indian blood, and then pretty much everyone else uh, of different descents. Santa Ana's family wasn't wealthy, but his father had some land and some business beyond his official duties. 
They moved to Veracruz when he was very young, and he loved that port city for the rest of his life. Young Antonio's father wanted him to take over the family business and be a merchant. At school, he was bright and energetic, but boredom caused him to act out, and he got expelled. He apprenticed to a merchant, but was about as interested in trade as he was in school. After a lot of pleading and cajoling, his father finally agreed to let him join the army. In June 1810, he joined the local Royal Infantry Regiment as a cadet at the age of 16. Only a few months later, the Mexican War of Independence began with the revolt of Father Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. The Veracruz Regiment was sent to fight the revolt, but Hidalgo was captured and executed before they even saw combat. Santa Ana was disappointed, but his unit remained in northern Mexico to fight Indians, bandits, and revolutionaries. His energy and enthusiasm was noticed, and he was transferred to the cavalry and was quickly promoted. In 1813, he was assigned to the command of General José de Arredondo, who had been ordered to crush a rebellion in Texas. This had broken out in 1812, when a group of Mexican revolutionaries and American adventurers, known as the Gutierrez-McGee Expedition, invaded from the United States. They captured Goliad in San Antonio and declared independence as the Republic of the North. Arredondo's force of 1,800 men entered Texas in August of 1813. They engaged the Republic of the Norse Army of 1,400 men at the Battle of Medina, which is about 20 miles south of San Antonio. This may be the bloodiest battle ever fought in Texas, with 1,300 of the Republicans killed. Many were by execution after the battle. The Spanish only lost 55 men. Santa Ana was awarded for heroism for his action in the battle, and he was on hand to witness the brutal oppression of the province for supporting the rebellion. 300 more people were executed in San Antonio, and hundreds of civilians, both American and Spanish, fled to the United States. This was Santa Ana's first real taste of war, and it's evident that Arredondo became a mentor and role model for him, in both method and in temperament. He also established a connection with Texas. He wrote home telling his family that the beauty of this country surpasses all description, and that the skies at night were one of the most lovely arrays that can be observed in all the heavens. This would become important years later, because for Santa Ana, Texas was a real place where he won his earliest glories, and not one he'd give up his attachment to easily. After leaving Texas, Santa Ana was promoted to captain and returned to Veracruz as chief aide to the military governor. He also made a name for himself fighting the rebels in the area. He used this position to acquire land outside of Veracruz, which he'd settled with rebels who'd accepted parole after capture, usually on land he'd seized from them in the first place. He was popular with his superiors, but often rubbed locals the wrong way with his imperious attitude. In spite of this friction, among society he was considered charming, handsome, intelligent, energetic, and cultured. He was also very popular with the soldiers who served under him and the many senoritas that fell to his charms. He actually sounds a lot like Davy Crockett. <laughs> yeah. After a decade of revolution, Spanish control began to unravel, and Santa Ana could see which way the wind blew. In 1821, a Criollo royalist named Agustin de Iturbide changed sides and joined the revolutionary leaders Vicente Guerrero and Guadalupe Victoria. They issued the Plan of Iguala, declaring independence on the three guarantees of freedom, religion, and union. They soon began winning victories throughout Mexico. Santa Ana, now a 26-year-old colonel, was sent against the rebels, but instead he declared his support for them. Now, Later in life, he claimed that he'd considered independence for some time, but there's no doubt that his interests were suffering from the continued war. He was sharp enough to know that if the aristocratic Iturbide could make an alliance with the hardened Republicans, they weren't going to be stopped. 
As the rebels began to win victories, Santa Ana led forces to capture Jalapa and Veracruz. He didn't get immediate credit for this, as he was technically under the command of a rival officer, but thanks to his own skills of self-promotion, he came off as the real liberator. He joined the rebel army for its triumphant march into Mexico City, where independence was confirmed. He soon settled in to command the garrison of Jalapa, and tried to ingratiate himself with Iturbide, who was declared Emperor of Mexico, in June 1822. Iturbide didn't care much for Santa Ana, who he found to be quarrelsome, ambitious, and vain. Iturbide eventually got the young colonel out of Mexico City by making him the commander at Veracruz, which is what Santa Ana had wanted all along. This gave him control over the biggest source of customs revenue in the country and most of the wealth coming into Mexico. One thing he learned from Iturbide was the value of choosing the proper side. Iturbide's reign as the first emperor of Mexico is where the major political tensions of the new nation began to coalesce. The three guarantees were intended to accommodate the conservatives, liberals, and radicals. Iturbide, despite changing sides to support independence, was obviously still a conservative royalist at heart. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sought a crown. Guerrero and Victorio were hardcore Republicans who had the support of the lowest classes of society, the mestizos, the Indians, and everybody else of mixed blood. Iturbide had the support of the former aristocrats, the wealthy landowning Criollos, and the Catholic Church. In between stood the middle-class Criollos who supported whoever they felt had their best interests in mind. Santa Ana and his family clearly fell into this category, and this marked the period of the Caldillos, or strong men, in Mexico. As is typical for new monarchs, Iturbide spent too much money, gave jobs to his cronies, raised taxes, ignored then dissolved the Mexican Congress, and pretty much oppressed the heck out of everybody. Victorio and Guerrero left when it was clear Iturbide was a tyrant. Soon Mexico was broke and couldn't even afford to pay the army. And that was the last straw. In December 1822, Santa Ana, knowing that the time was right, issued the call for republic to his men. Soon he was joined by Victorio and Veracruz, and Guerrero rose up in the north. They issued the plan of Casamata, which denounced the empire and called for the restoration of Congress. Within six weeks, the plan reached all corners of Mexico, including Texas. Iturbide sent his forces against Santa Ana, who was defeated at Zalapa and retreated to Veracruz. He tried to escape to the United States, but Victorio advised him to stay put, saying, When you see the head of Victorio, take a ship. Victorio knew what Santa Ana soon found out. He and his troops were immune to vomito, or yellow fever, and would outlast any outside army that was sent against them. Soon Iturbide's disease-stricken army switched sides, and fortunes turned against the emperor. The rebels took Mexico City and forced Iturbide into exile. Santa Ana appears to have hoped for a bigger place in the new order, but he was sent to San Luis Potosi, a state in central Mexico, and cut out of natural politics. Rebels! <laughs> While the government tried to organize itself, in 1823 it was at an impasse. Some favored a federal republic, others a central dictatorship. Whether it was from self-interest, resentment, or a genuine desire to promote Republican and Federalist ideals, Santa Ana issued the plan of St. Louis Potosi calling for a Federalist government. There was some fighting between his own troops and the locals who didn't care for him or his plan, but the revolt ended when Congress endorsed Federalism and adopted the Liberal Constitution of 1824. Santa Ana submitted and was taken to Mexico City for court-martial. Fortune continued to favor him when yet another coup broke out. 
Santa Ana dramatically marched into Congress and offered his sword or his life to defend the state. This grandstanding helped his cause, and he was acquitted of all charges and appointed governor of Yucatan. He also added a lot of shine to his staunch Republican credentials. And if you're keeping count, that's the third plan that Santa Ana issued for... Or was part of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Santa Ana served in Yucatan during the Guadalupe Victoria presidency, planning an invasion of Cuba that came to nothing. He also remained popular with the army and did well in establishing peace and government in Yucatan. He continued to acquire land outside of Veracruz, but he found Yucatan to be poor, backwards, and remote, and he wanted to go home. In 1825, at the ripe old age of 31, Santa Ana resigned his post, citing his health, and he retired from the military. He returned to Veracruz and married 14-year-old Maria Inez de la Paz Garcia and bought the Hacienda Manga de Clava. He spent the next few years as a private landowner, and he started a family. During Santa Ana's retirement, Victorio finished his term. He was the only Mexican president in 30 years to serve a full term without being removed by a coup, rebellion, or other unrest. Though the land was mostly at peace, political parties formed between different Masonic groups who associated with conservative and liberal positions. Fighting between these parties and Veracruz drew Santa Ana, who supported neither, out of retirement. He was appointed acting governor of the province after putting down the rebellion. The elections of 1828 pitted Vicente Guerrero, the liberal revolutionary leader, against Manuel Gomez Pedraza, a moderate conservative. The election was bitterly contested, and Guerrero won the popular vote, but Pedraza carried more states, officially winning the election. Feeling that Pedraza had stolen the election and that he would betray Republican ideals, Santa Ana and another Republican leader, Lorenzo de Zavala, who we talked about in an earlier episode, revolted in support of Guerrero. After heavy fighting, where Santa Ana enhanced his military reputation for being able to defy the odds, the trio marched into Mexico City and deposed Pedraza. A grateful Guerrero appointed him governor of Veracruz once again. A year later, Santa Ana would gain a greater glory when he fought off an attempted Spanish invasion off Tampico. By this time, he was referring to himself as the Napoleon of the West for his many victories as well as his rising position as a power broker for the Republic. He was overwhelmingly popular throughout the country. Guerrero's government proved too radical for the conservatives, and in 1829, his vice president, Anastasio Bustamante, staged a coup that drove Guerrero out of office. Although Santa Ana didn't agree with all of the reforms, he still supported his old friend and tried to restore him to power. But Guerrero was defeated in December 1829. Santa Ana retired again to Veracruz for two years, while Bustamante centralized power. Bustamante tried to entice him into joining his side, but Santa Ana refused to accept the honors and offers. By 1831, Bustamante's regime was getting steadily more oppressive, pushing the rest of Mexico towards revolt. Santa Ana finally declared against Bustamante in January 1832, after Guerrero was captured by Bustamante's troops and executed without trial. Santa Ana actually brought in Pedraza to fight Bustamante for a restoration of the Constitution of 1824. The rebellion even reached Texas, where disturbances occurred against centralist forces in Anahuac, Belasco, and Nacogdoches. Even Stephen F. Austin's colony sent 300 men to join Santa Ana's army in Veracruz. In the end, too many army units switched sides, and a negotiated settlement was reached. Bustamante agreed to retire, and Pedraza became president to finish his interrupted term, which Santa Ana had deposed him from in the first place. In March 1833, Santa Ana ran unopposed for the presidency. He assumed the office with much pomp and circumstance. 
and was celebrated not only throughout Mexico and Texas, but even in the United States. He almost immediately returned to Veracruz, citing ill health, and left his vice president, Valentin Gomez Farias, in charge. He did come back twice over the next year for a month at a time to address some issue or another and then return home. Farias went on to enact some radically liberal reforms. One theory is that Santa Ana wasn't sure how far along the liberal path the country would tolerate, so he let Farias enact the reforms to see how people would react. Another theory states that he was fine with political power, but wasn't at all interested in actually governing. He preferred to let others do the work. He'd rather be at home in his hacienda with his family or in the field with his army. But whatever the case, the same conservative elements that had opposed previous reforms balked at these new reforms as well. Rather than waiting to be deposed, Santa Ana simply changed sides again and returned in 1834 to throw out Farias and repeal all of his liberal reforms. Santa Ana abolished the Constitution of 1824, and he rolled back all liberal reforms in federalism, which basically established a centralized military dictatorship. He further antagonized the Anglos in Texas by suspending immigration, increasing the military presence in the state, and jailing Stephen F. Austin when he tried to request that Texas be separated from Coahuila. After the Texas Revolution, he was asked why he abandoned his liberal ideals, and he responded, quote, It is very true I threw up my cap for liberty with great ardor and perfect sincerity, but very soon found the folly of it. A hundred years to come, my people will not be fit for liberty. They do not know what it is, unenlightened as they are. And under the influence of a Catholic clergy, a despotism is the proper form of government for them. But there is no reason why it should not be a wise and virtuous one. Historian Will Fowler's 2006 biography of Santa Ana takes another perspective. He theorized that Santa Ana was an ardent Federalist, but only when it benefited Veracruz and his own interest. Pragmatically, he would switch to centrism when he was able to ensure the government was staffed with Veracruzanos. Whatever his motivations, abolishing the Constitution drove many of the state governments to revolt. Over the next two years, ten states rebelled. Santa Ana responded by dissolving the state governments and even further centralizing power. He also meted out harsh responses to rebellion, especially in Zacatecas, where thousands were killed. He resigned the presidency in 1835 to Manuel Barragan in order to fight the revolts at the request of Congress. We've talked about how a revolution broke out in Texas in October of that year, and how Mexican forces under his brother-in-law Martín Perfecto de Caz were driven out of the state by the end of the year. Santa Ana seems to have taken special offense to American immigrants revolting in the province where he found his first taste of glory. From this point on, the story is quite familiar. Santa Ana led his army to Texas in early 1836 with a declaration that no quarter would be given. He besieged the small force in San Antonio at the Alamo, killing them all in a costly victory. He sent detachments of troops to roll up other groups of Texian forces in South Texas. This led to the capture of Fannin's men at Goliad, where he ordered their execution. This caused the remaining Texan army to retreat, but also resulted in more support for the revolution and stiffened the resolve of the Texans. The pursuit of Sam Houston's army was frustrating, who wouldn't turn and fight, but also would not admit defeat. Santa Ana's frustration and overconfidence ended up placing him in a position where his army could be surprised and destroyed at the Battle of San Jacinto. He himself suffered the embarrassment of capture while attempting to flee in disguise. Without the real authority to do so, Santa Ana surrendered and issued orders to the rest of his forces, which still outnumbered the Texans, to retreat back to Mexico. In Mexico, the public and government were torn between anger at the defeat and concern for Santa Ana. 
a new constitution was quickly drafted, and to show how bad things looked in Mexico, they actually elected Bustamante president once again. Santa Ana himself escaped execution in Texas, and he finally was released and sent to Washington, D.C., where he had promised to try to mediate a permanent peace between Texas and Mexico. He did meet with American President Andrew Jackson, who helped him return to Mexico, where he retired back to his hacienda and family, the Napoleon of the West and founder of the Republic, thoroughly disgraced and discredited. Yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating history. (laughs) You know, I mean, we've talked in the past about um, all of the turmoil in Mexico that helped uh, contribute to what was going on in Texas and as we, you know, dig into just the aspects surrounding Santa Ana, he was such a central figure in a lot of that that it really gives you a picture of how chaotic things were. Well, the joke amongst us is is that let you know, here comes Darth Vader again yeah. when we look at this. What you're taught in school in Texas history is that Santa Ana was a tyrant, he was a dictator, and he was oppressing Texas, and Texas revolted. And it's a bit like well, the Star Wars metaphor works. It's a bit like if you watch the original episode four, it's like, here's this bad guy dressed mm-hmm. in black, and there's he's the bad guy, and we have to defeat him and win the day, and Texas wins the day. But there's a lot of depth of how did he become this guy, and you see this, oh, he flips, flops sides, and he just takes advantage of, of whatever the way the wind is blowing. He just gets a lucky bounce and seems to always come back and end well, up on the right side, even... even the people that he kicks out of office, he puts right back into office, but whenever it suits him. Right. But as of 1836, though, at least from a Mexican perspective, and even up to 1834, from a Texas perspective as well, he's not a villain. He's not a bad guy. He's a hero. Yeah. He's he's sort of George Washington, or or not, not necessarily George Washington, but maybe... Uh, like an Alexander Hamilton or someone, a, a hero of the American Revolution or the, of the Mexican Revolution who who was a power broker. Right. But, and then eventually rose up to the top of having the power. Yeah, but like any great villain, he never considers himself as the bad guy. So, no. so even while he's doing these horrible things and, you know, violently and brutally suppressing these rebellions, um, he sees himself as... The hero, like you right. said. But he's a strong... Um, I get what yeah. you're saying, Sean. Is he's a strong and decisive military leader at this point in history. Right. Who everybody goes, man, that guy, he's a strong and decisive leader. But from our historical perspective, all we've ever been taught or told about this mm-hmm. guy is, you know, he's the Hitler of Mexico. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think the thing is, is it's Goliath that does that. I think even at that time, everybody, everybody, everybody knew... Everybody sitting in the Alamo in February of 1836, they knew there was no mercy, and they knew there was a death sentence, but they accepted it, they they did it, and they knew that they were fighting a losing battle, they were going to die. Those men that surrendered at Goliad, they surrendered and were told, you're going to live, and then Santa Ana said, no, execute them. And it's because, from a pragmatic, realpolitik perspective— he was treating them like pirates. He was treating them like mercenaries. And, you know, he that was what he had been raised to do with rebels is you, you set an example. It's not right, but it is you can understand his perspective. But it's it, I do. And but I just I, I think back to the idea of what that constitution meant in Mexico that he was a mm-hmm. part of what the idea of the three guarantees of. So it was an idea of it was a compromise of all the positions to try to get everybody together. It didn't work. The Constitution of 1824 
was a very liberal document. It, it, it did guarantee a lot of those things. Again, Mexico has, there's such a complex sociopolitical background to Spanish Mexico, to New Spain that just carried over into the early Mexican Republic. At this point, we're six presidents in, in about a decade. The next decade, I've lost track of how many presidents Mexico well, went it, through. It was, and, and that's the thing is there's no, like I can't fault Santa Ana for being so, you know, chaotic in his allegiance to sides and flipping sides when right. you live in a place where there is no political stability. The only stability is whoever mm-hmm. holds the power yeah, at the and time. He, and he strikes me very much from reading this as he's the guy that's like, you know what, look, I just want to go and sit in my hammock by the ocean, mm-hmm. but you people keep screwing things up, so I'm going to have to come in and bust your heads and tell you what to do. And that's, we didn't really talk about this, we kind of hinted at it, but his talent, and actually he had a very close advisor who's was really talented at promoting Santa Ana, of putting up the right image of this person. He's just this charming gentleman soldier who just comes out of retirement just to help the country get better and to do better. And he's this great hero. It, it, it was very much promotion of this and self-promotion of this this person and th- this man, and he created this narrative of him. And that's what confused this thing because we don't really have the true insight of what his motivation is. Was it because he wanted the the betterment of the country? Was it he wanted to just get him line his own pockets? Was it because he really believed in these liberal Republican ideals? Was it because he just wanted to protect the Veracruzanos? Or was it all of those things in combined into one person? I love, I want to go back to the beginning to early on when he was, when he was first uh, in uh, capturing these rebels, right? And he was getting their land. He was seizing their land. And then he was paroling them back to work that land, yeah. In a patronage system. Well, I mean, I very much get the impression that he was, like I said, he's the guy's like, look, every Mexico would be wonderful if you just do what I say. Yes. And he, he very much has that uh, pic- picture of himself as I'm, I'm, I'm the enlightened one that knows what you need. And it's like there's that quote that we had in there from him where he talked about mm-hmm. a despotism is what these people need. This, right. is, this is the right government for these people. It and, doesn't show yeah. a lot of respect for those people. But you can tell in his own kind of twisted way that he has, he feels like he has their best interest right. in mind. And an enlightened despotism, that is very much a 17th century, 18th century ideal. Uh, Napoleon was considered an enlightened, enlightened despot. And that's what he really aspired to. But also, Napoleon was a micromanager who literally wrote laws himself. Santa Ana didn't care about any of that. Well, right. That that's right. You know, we talked about all the presidents that mm-hmm. went through Mexico and it was like, you know, probably. 15, 50 to 75% of them Santa Ana put in charge because right. he didn't want to run the government. And it was self, it was very much, he was driven by self-interest. And that's the biggest thing that he was driven by. Well, I love the, you know, the self-aggrandizing, I am the Napoleon of the West. Like, it's a wonderful term he applies to himself. But I wonder from a historical point of view of, one, is is Napoleon something that, many were aspiring to at the time and two you know is is it a good was he actually napoleon-esque in that way and what he achieved um he was a good motivator of men he was very yeah inspired loyalty of his men he wasn't a fantastic strategist or tactician he was very lucky and he was very cognizant of being in the right place at the right time that was that was really his strength the the tampico thing the Spanish came in 
and then they sort of just left. <laughs> he nearly got captured um, by the Spanish, and he, he nearly got killed. But he was just in the right place at the right time. We talked about the Bustamante when he when he took the field against Bustamante, uh, and he gained a knack for being able to get out of a tricky situation. We took a castle, this this old building, this fort, and he had these men dressed up as nuns and priests patrolling the walls and then would shoot and snipe at the other soldiers. But the other soldiers wouldn't shoot them because they weren't sure if they were the priests. So he he was canny. That's the big... He was he's very canny. Very clever, shrewd yes. tactician. Yes, he's a yeah. very clever man, but he wasn't a great general like a Robert E. Lee or a Napoleon. He wasn't a first thinker, a... Or revolutionary strategist, he was he was just very sharp. Yeah, and it it seems at least so far that his, you know, in addition to his knack for being clever and being at the right place at the right time, he also knew when to apply um, severe brutality to get the decisive victory that he needed. And great theatrics too. The whole thing of the episode of going before Congress and here is my sword. I give it to you to defend the republic. He was again. He was he was just very shrewd and. Yes, he well, did have think, a vicious streak too. Well, I think that's the. I think that's politics. I mean, we would be, it would be naive of us to say to say that even today that there isn't a great deal of theatric theatricality in how you approach politics. And you know, Mexico at the time was nothing but unrest mm-hmm. and severe politics. And so you know, it was just another arena that he applied his theatricality and his his kind of shrewd mind to that and said oh here's an opportunity now's the time you know he was he's the guy who's at the table in vegas and he goes all in at the right time we're gonna put it all on we're gonna put it all on black and let it ride and spin the wheel and it always seems to come up just the right way Mm -hmm. like no matter what the tricky situation is he sort of somehow escapes it by just picking a picking a plan and committing to it even if that plan involves completely 180 degree shift of your allegiances. Right. And when he was a captor, a captive in Texas, he was very flattering to the people. I mean, when they, when he finally got on the ship to go to, to New Orleans and then to Washington, there was like a parade outside for him and they, they cheered him and he gave a speech about how much he loved Texas and how it broke his heart that the, the children in Mexico were breaking away, but that he understood that they, you know that 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 these things happen, and you know it was he he was he was a charmer, and he he was not above charming his enemies into back into his camp. He was a survivor. He was he was he's the ultimate survivor, and that's the thing that's admirable about him, and it's maddening about him too. But he is so admirable about him is he's a he's a comeback kid. So we're yeah. we're at a two parter in this, and I would say at this delineation in this point, um. We've just at the very end as a footnote really covered the the atrocities of the Texas Revolution and his role there. Yeah, and kind of to circle back to where we started with this this half of the show, we said at the very beginning that um, you know you can be defined by the enemies you keep, and I think in a lot of ways it it kind of shortchanges Texas to say that Santa Ana was just this one dimensional horrible evil person. Um, I think it really shows the it improves the standing of Texas if you look at him as he actually was and he, that he was greater than that one dimensional. He wasn't just a foolish, evil right. bully who pushed Texas around. He, he wasn't a banana republic dictator. The other thing, though, is that it shows the incredible complexity of the political situation. Again, we go back to this, but in 1834, in 1833 and 34, 
Texans went to Mexico to shoulder arms in support of Santa Ana and to serve yeah. under him. He was the great hero of Texas yeah. in 1834. They they revolted in Texas to support him. So in two years, less than two years, that completely changed. If he had died in that revolt, he would still probably be held up as a great hero of Texas. If Bustamante had captured him and killed him or something like that, Santa Ana would be one of those great leaders of Texas who supported Texas and we, we supported him and he's this tragic martyr of Mexico. So but, I, it didn't happen that it didn't way. Happen no, it didn't happen that way. It did not happen that so way. So I'd ask this question as we wind this down to, to all of us here. Now knowing what you know about him at this point, how do you feel about Santa Ana? I, I think he is the defining character of Texas, one of the defining characters of Texas. And it, and he, it's like Scott said, it, we do deserve to fully understand the his character. And he does have admirable qualities, and he has appalling qualities. And so at this point, though, the the big thing is, where does he go from here? And that's what we need to really look into and think about. Yeah, and I kind of feel pretty much the same way. I mean, it, it's we've talked about other historical figures in Texas, um, you know, early Texas Rangers that rampaged through the West and indiscriminately killed people, you know. But we still hold up the Texas Rangers as a, you know, one of the legends of Texas and one of the, the great things about Texas. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Santa Ana is one of the great things about Texas, but he's definitely a contributor to our history. And if we want to really understand our history, then we need to understand Santa Ana. You know, I feel a little bit sorry for him. I feel like a guy who had a lot of talent and, you know, this political situation and, and he sort of, the villain that we just sort of adopted and we're just told about is very, it has multidimensional character and he's, he's got this interesting history of how he flipped sides and sort of was a survivor, as you said, Scott. But I think you sort of, when you see this, you al I almost feel a little sorry for him because he never was a part of a system where he could really get traction, where there could be a president, uh, you know, in a stable government where he could have bloomed and had opportunities for, you know, 8, 10, 15 years of a stable government. Where his good qualities could be most utilized. Right. Where, his, where he could have been the hero he could have been the hero that Texan thought he was for a short while until he became you know the villain and it just you feel a little sorry for him at the same time you recognize that he had the innate capability of committing horrible atrocities and being brutal and opportunistic so it's just one of those things of he's a very complicated character and so to prepare us this is only the beginning of the story for Santa Ana. Yeah. He's down, but he's not out. He's not out. So stay tuned. Next week, we could come back with part two of the amazing life of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends, and please leave a review on iTunes. That can help us get noticed and reach new listeners, just like you. 
We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.